2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 11. This is what the Word of God has to say. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you calls to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. If, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and, has, and was raised. For now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One of the things that you can use as a, as a good study tool, particularly when, when studying Paul's writings, but, but any where in Scripture, but particularly Paul, is the word, to look for the word, therefore. In this passage, there are three major therefores as we read through it. And a good rule to follow is to pay attention to when you see a therefore and to understand what it is there for. So particularly with Paul, he often builds his arguments, one logic on another. So he declares a truth, and then he says, therefore, because of that truth, this thing is true. And because of this thing, this is true. And so each of those is linked and built upon the next with the linking word of therefore. So particularly when you're studying Paul and you, and you drop in on a passage and it begins with therefore, then you need to spend the time to go back, to look before the passage and to understand why Paul is making the, the, the case for what he is saying in the passage that you are reading. In chapter 5, uh, and verse 10, but really that's the culmination of verses 1 through 10, Paul calls the church to have an eternal perspective and recognize that there is a coming judgment for all, believers and not believers, 
where all will be judged according to how we have lived. And now building on that truth, he now turns his attention to how this eternal perspective changes um, everything about how we live. Thus in verse 11 he says, therefore. In other words, we live differently because we recognize that this, that, that, that this body and this world is, are temporary and passing away. And there is coming a judgment of God and there is an eternity that we are living for presently. In this passage, now there, if, you're, if you're counting the actual word therefore, there are more than three, but there are three major therefores that are indicating of, of Paul's building his argument. Verse 11, verse 16, and verse 20. They build Paul's argument for how an eternal perspective transforms how you live in the present. The resurrection changes who you live for. The gospel transforms how you live presently. And the hope of the gospel transforms how you relate to one another and to the world around you. So those three ideas, I want to to communicate them to you in these three points this morning. Number one, live for Jesus. Number two, live as a new creation. And number three, live as an ambassador for the gospel. Beginning with live for Jesus. In other words, the resurrection transforms who you live for. Now, uh, th- this is a fundamental statement, so I want to say it, and I wanna, this is where, if you're taking notes, write this one down. The resurrection, by definition, the resurrection is transformative. If you believe the resurrection, it transforms who and what you are. In, in verses uh, 14 and 15, draw your attention there. He said, Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who, might, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He's saying there that because his belief in the resurrection, it has transformed who and what he is. The resurrection is transformative. So in verse 11, Paul begins with the very first, therefore. And and he's pointing to verses, he's building on what he's already said in verses 1 through 10. That our bodies are corrupted and temporary. That those who are being saved have bodies no longer, are being, those who who are saved have bodies that will be given to them, made by God, that are eternal and not under the curse of sin. And that Christians are to live in the present difficulties with an eternal perspective and hope. And in this, in, in this eternal perspective and hope, Christians are to live to please the Lord, living in hope and holy fear of the judgment to come. That's all of verses 1 through 10. Then in verse 11, therefore, because of that, Paul recognizes that this holy fear of the coming judgment compels him to persuade others to follow Jesus. Now, we're going to come back to this this driving to persuade others later. And then he turns his attention to a personal testimony of why he preaches Jesus. In verse 14, 
Paul declares, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Now, depending on what translation you're reading from, it might say control or it might say something else there. But the, the, the Greek word that's being translated there literally means to exercise continuous control over someone or something, to control or to restrain. Uh, the, the literal meaning is to seize or to take hold of you. Here's where the faithful and the academic and cultural diverge. The, the knowledge of the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of man's sins is not something that can be believed and, and not be transformed by it. Now, listen to me carefully. You can know of the death and resurrection of Jesus and remain the same. I, I said on Resurrection Sunday that, that, that most of us who gather here in church on Resurrection Sunday, if I were to ask, do you believe that, that God raised from the dead, most would say yes. But I want to listen to me. You can be aware that you can acknowledge the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus and remain the same. You can appreciate the historical significance of, of the death and resurrection of Jesus and remain the same. You can acknowledge the significance the death and resurrection of Jesus has had on culture and remain the same. But listen to me carefully. You cannot believe uh, in, in the death and resurrection of Jesus and remain the same. In other words, if you believe indeed that Jesus died for your sin and rose again, defeating death, believing in faith unto salvation in the resurrection, if that is true of you, then by definition, it transforms who you are. You cannot believe in faith on the resurrection and remain the same. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died to save you from your sin and rose again from the dead, defeating death. Believing this transforms you for the rest of your life and for the rest of eternity. Somebody say amen to that. Listen to me, friends. What you believe about the gospel, what you believe about the resurrection is by definition transformative. Some of you have acknowledged it but not believed it. And the testimony of the difference is whether or not it has transformed your life. What Paul is saying is, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose again, and it controls me and everything about me. In fact, he's declaring that he's living a joyful sacrifice in his life. If you look in the first half of verse 18, excuse me, verse, first half of verse 14, it says that, that he has been seized or controlled by the love of Christ. Now, if you're reading out of the New American Standard or the English Standard Version, it says it controls us. If you're out of the NIV this morning, it compels us. If you're reading out of the King James, it constraineth us. All of those communicating that idea of being seized or controlled by the gospel. He is saying that he cannot help but proclaim the gospel. Now listen to me carefully on this. He's not saying that in the sense of that he is unwilling. So he's not saying I'm being made to, but I don't want to. He is saying it in the sense that the death and resurrection of Jesus for man's sin is so compelling that, 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 he, is, that, he, that he is conscience bound, that he, that he cannot help but give his life for the gospel because it is so transformative of, 
of who he is. In simple terms, Paul is saying that because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, he cannot help but give his life to proclaiming this to the world. Paul was denying his self-interest for the work of the gospel. Not because he had to because of an external force, but because he could not help to but give his life to Jesus because of eternal, internal conviction. Now, friends, living for Jesus requires denial of self. But denial of self for Jesus does not come to earn salvation. It comes as a result of salvation. Just because I was curious thinking about this, this point, I, I Googled this week, what is the most significant, most important um, medicine in all of human history? And there was unquestionable a winner. Top of every single list that I read was penicillin. The penicillin has transformed the world in really uh, in, in countless ways. But the but the statistic that I I saw quoted in, in several articles that I read about it it said it this way. So it is believed that without penicillin, 75% of people today would not be alive because their ancestors would have succumbed to infection. That's a pretty big deal. Now, penicillin was, was developed in, in 1928, didn't really start being used until 1948, but when it began to be used, it transformed to us to a world where once if you got sick, you would be sick unto death. And now for most of us, we assume that whatever ails us, there is a, a pill or a treatment that's going to, to cure us. Now imagine with me, if you were the one who discovered the healing effects of penicillin and you understood how dramatic it was to the health and well-being of those who had bacterial infections. Now, you appreciate the fact that your impulse, if you had been the one who discovered penicillin, maybe at first would be, I want to at least share this with my family and those that I like, but, but you would be conscience-bound. If you had something that could transform the health of millions and millions and millions of people, there would be, it wouldn't be a sense that you had to tell the world it would be a sense that you would be conscience-bound to tell the world. It would be immoral for you to have something that could save so many lives and keep it a secret. Now, I think you, you exponentially push that out. And what Paul is saying is because he has understood the eternal transforming, the saving grace that comes from the gospel, that's what I think he's trying to communicate when he says, I, it, it controls me. I cannot help but proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Friends, those of you who know Jesus, live for Jesus not because you have to. But if you've been transformed by the saving gospel of Jesus, you can't help but live for Jesus. Amen? Now, number two, Paul is calling us to live as new creations. The gospel transforms the nuts and bolts, the, the practical ways of how you live presently in this world. Look with me in verse 17. In verse 17, this is the, the, the second therefore. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Live as new creations. Friends, when you are saved... You are made a new creation in Christ. That's what he's saying in verse 17. Having explained that he is compelled to proclaim the gospel, Paul now adds another layer to his argument with the second therefore. That's why he begins. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. And then he explains that further in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The importance of being in Christ, Paul often uses this phrase, in Christ, for those who, who have believed unto salvation. So, so, it, so there's a phrase here that Paul is using, those who are in Christ. Now what he means by that is those who are in Christ are those who are covered, whose sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus, those who are forgiven of their sin, those who have the promise of eternity with God in heaven, those who are filled with the Holy Spirit as the, the, the promissory guarantee of their salvation, those who have been made new in salvation. And the distinguishing mark between those who are saved and those who are not saved for Paul is that phrase, those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. When the secular culture attempts to incorporate Christianity, it approaches faith as something that you add to or onto your life. You put on or you take off, you accept or you reject. The Bible teaches that when you are in Christ, you are transformed, meaning that your nature, your perspective, your desires, your allegiances are transformed to, to, to be to be, uh, uh, to, be it, to be like Christ's. I fear that too often the effort of the church, at least in, in recent decades, has been for un unregenerate sinners, the, the church has tried to force unregenerate sinners to live like new creations without being in Christ. I, I want to... I, I, I'm a child of the 70s, 80s, 90s. I'm a child of the church growth movement. And I just remember hearing lots of sermons that, that, that sort of had as their impetus, you ought to live thusly. And a lot of sort of heavy guilt as if, if the church wasn't living up according to the way they should live. Now, not knocking that, it's certainly appropriate for a preacher to declare to the church, brothers and sisters, if indeed you are believers, this is how you should live. But I think the, the pressure of those days was attempting to get unregenerate those who were not in Christ to behave like they were in Christ without being transformed by Christ. Listen to me carefully here. Being a new creation with a new nature is not something that is negotiable. It is the only outcome when you are in Christ. In other words, friends, if you have come to salvation you are, by definition, a new creation. 
And by definition, if you are a new creation, the preacher doesn't have to beg you to live for Jesus. You naturally live for Jesus. That's different than some external force trying to make you live right. Friends, if you, if you, are, if you have been transformed by the gospel, live as new creations because you are new creations in Christ. And therefore, as a result of that, Paul says we work for, we do the work of God. So look at what he says in verse 18. It's interesting here because he, he, he tells us what God has called us to. Verse 18 he says, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, uh, to himself not counting the trespasses against, this, against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Verse 18, Paul makes clear who is the one who makes you a new creation. Now, it's important to get this right. You're, you're not a new creation through your efforts. And you're not a new creation. You don't receive a, your, a, 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 the, being a new creation as a reward for something that you have done. Being a new creation is not passed down as a birthright or, or some privilege of, of membership in some particular group. Being a new creation is a work of God. Paul says, from God through Christ. So if you're a new creation, it is a work of God in your life. In verse 19, Paul explains, God reconciled the world to himself through giving Jesus as an offering for sin. We talked on Resurrection Sunday on how God gave Jesus for our redemption. So it was a work of God, a work of God through the gift and sacrifice of Jesus. Now the arrogance of the flesh always attempts to take credit for the works and the gifts of God. So when you add cultural Christianity and secularism and, and that tries to take on some, uh, some veneer of Christianity, that's where you get the sense of I'm a new creation because of what I've done or something that I've accomplished. Friends, being a new creation leaves no room for the pride of flesh because God did it. Through the work of Jesus, the only thing that you can do to be a new creation in Christ is to receive it through believing faith. That's it. It is a work of God. Therefore, you and I, those of you who believed on Jesus, you, Paul says, are to be a living testimony for Christ. That's what he means when the second part of verse 19, when he talks about entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That's a pretty astonishing statement, don't you think? God did the work through Jesus, but then he entrusted to you and I the ministry of reconciliation. Now, can I just be honest? If I had the word that could transform the eternity of people from eternity under the wrath of God in hell to the eternity of salvation, if I had the word could transform the whole world for the glory of God. I'm not sure. Now, I love all of you with all my heart, but I'm not sure I'd entrust it with you. Unless you think I'm being mean, I don't think I'd entrust it with me either. But Paul says, God entrusted to those whom God has made into new creations in Christ. He entrusted you with the ministry. Of reconciliation. 
To those who have been saved and made new through the gospel of Jesus, God has entrusted the message of reconciliation. In the days before cell phones, text messages, and voicemail, whoever answered the home phone, or whoever answered the phone in general, took on the responsibility of being the message taker and the message deliverer. Now, it used to be, that we don't do this anymore, but it used to be that if you were the receptionist for a business, beside the phone, you would have a phone message notebook, and it had little forms you could fill out in triplicate where you could record messages for people in the office and then you would deliver them to them. If at your house, either at the den phone or the kitchen phone, there was a piece of paper, a notepad, and you weren't allowed to answer the phone unless you could properly take down the message. But, but here's what we all understood. If you, if, you, if you made a phone call and you left a message, one of the calculus that you had to make was the person who was taking the message, were they responsible enough to actually deliver the message? And if you weren't real confident that the person taking the message could deliver the message, you'd call back later to try to talk to the actual person to make sure that the message was delivered. And in all of our homes, we had arguments about whether messages were rightly delivered or not. Now, kids, those of you who've grown up with cell phones and, and voicemail, you have no clue what I'm talking about. But it was a different day back then when you were responsible for delivering phone messages. And in that sense of you have heard the word and now you're responsible for delivering that message. That's the idea that Paul is giving here, that, that the church, those who have been redeemed, have been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. God has entrusted the believers, the church, with the message of the gospel. Those who are in Christ testify to this message with their lives and their own testimonies. Now, building on that, is the third, therefore. And so that is that we are to live as ambassadors for the gospel, that the hope of the gospel transforms how you relate to others. In verse 20, we understand that God makes the gospel known through the saints. He says in verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. The message of reconciliation has been entrusted to the saints. Thus, the saints, those who have been saved, those who have been made new in Christ, are ambassadors for Christ. Now, an ambassador is an appointed diplomat to represent the government in a foreign country. They, they are the ones who act as a representative. An ambassador, listen to me carefully, an ambassador does more than just live in a foreign country. You can get a plane ticket and go fly around the world today, buy a house and, 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 and live in a foreign country tomorrow. That doesn't make you an ambassador. An ambassador goes to a foreign country to represent, to, to promote the, the will, the way, the ideas, the perspective, the desires of the country from which they, they come. You are not called just to dwell in the world while waiting on the glory of God to come. 
You're not called to be isolated and insulated from the lost world around you. You are called, if you are a new creation in Christ, to be an ambassador, to engage, to actively represent, to actively promote, to make known the work and will of God. We're we're living in days that are dramatically changing. And we're all very aware that we're no longer living in a world that receives the gospel with joy. But that does not change who we are. If we are new in Christ, entrusted with the, the message of reconciliation, we are therefore also called to be ambassadors. Not ambassadors in, in, in places that are receiving us well only, but ambassadors wherever God puts us for the glory of his name. God makes the gospel known through the saints, and the saints are called to implore the lost to be reconciled to God. So this is what we're called to do. I mean, amongst the church does many wonderful things, but this is the, the supreme calling of the church. Look in verse 20 with me, the second part of verse 20. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then he preaches the gospel in one sentence. For, the sake, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice how Paul phrases the last part of verse 20. He says, God was making his appeal through us. We implore on behalf of Christ. In other words, God is doing the work. He's making the appeal. We are the conduit through us. He's making that appeal. And on account of what Jesus has done, so on behalf of Jesus, we make the appeal. He uses the word implore. Literally, the word there means with urgency, with implication of presumed need. But you and I might use the word beg. I beg you. Implore sounds formal. Probably may not use that in in, in regular conversations, but you would use the word beg. I beg you. On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Dear friends, the only hope is in Christ. The only life is in Christ. The only reconciliation with God is in Christ. Employ your family members. Be reconciled to Christ. Beg your co-workers to be reconciled to Christ. Beg your friends to be reconciled to Christ. For that matter, beg strangers on the street to be reconciled to Christ. It is not just a technique to give urgency. It's true. Time is fleeting. On two accounts. Number one, I don't know 
when the Lord will return. The only thing we know about Jesus' return is that it'll catch us all by surprise. Implore, beg your friends today to be reconciled to God. We don't know when Jesus will return. And secondly, friends, I don't know the number of your days. I've been pastoring and preaching long enough now that these are not words that I say without memory of it it happening when I say, we may not all gather again. Some of you may not be able to make it with us next week. I beg you, be reconciled to Christ. Time is fleeting. Now is the opportunity. You see, the greater the danger and the urgency, the less the complacency of the warning. In December 2004, an earthquake opened a fault line deep beneath the Indian Ocean. That triggered a tsunami. And that tsunami's wave would reach somewhere around 57 feet high. When that 57-foot wave hit land, it almost instantaneously devastated, washed away entire communities, entire towns. Some of the figures of its devastation, it displaced somewhere around 570 570,000 people destroyed nearly 200,000 buildings and homes. And this is the figure that just struck me. It killed over 227,000 people. It was a catastrophe of overwhelming proportions, but, but what made the destruction and the death toll of the tsunami so tragic is that despite there was a, a delay of hours between when the earthquake happened and when the wave hit land, there was no warning. There was no alert. There was no plea for folks to to get out of its way. The day that that tsunami hit in late December of that year, over a quarter of a million people went about their routine without the slightest concern that a massive wave was approaching them that would take their life. Millions of people went about their day regular. The things that you and I are planning to do tomorrow, going to work, going to school, buying groceries, doing errands, taking kids to activities, all the things that we do just regular and common. We don't write them down, they're not significant, they're just the the normal activities of our life. Millions of people that day went about their day completely unaware that there was a massive wave already on its way that would wipe out towns and cities and kill nearly a quarter of a million people in an instant. Surely, if they had known what was coming, there would have been a hasty evacuation to higher ground. Surely, if they had known what was coming, they would have 
rushed away from the destruction zone. They would have called their families and their friends. They would have said to their neighbors, you must leave now. But they went about their days unconcerned, unworried. With no warning, they went about their daily activities with no concern for the approaching danger. The gospel is the good word that wicked sinners can be reconciled to God through the reconciliation of Jesus. God's judgment is coming. His wrath is great and terrible. Yet as an act of grace, God has commissioned the saints to be his ambassadors to proclaim to the world. Salvation is in Jesus. Reconciliation is available through Jesus, who for our sake God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of Jesus. What a beautiful, good word. If you have believed it, it transforms how you live and who you are. If you believe that, it transforms how you relate to one another. You become ambassadors for the gospel. Dear friends, heed the word of the gospel today. Be reconciled to God and be saved. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.